You guys can have a seat and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 this morning as we talk about resurrection. And when I was a little kid, like a preschooler, I used to suck my thumb. My parents tried to break me of that habit every way they could. They tried for years. Everything in the book to get me to stop sucking my thumb. Because it's unsanitary, and if you do it enough, it'll mess up the bite of your teeth. So they tried for years, and nothing worked. Because it was a habit. It was ingrained in me to suck my thumb. But all of that changed around kindergarten. I was out playing with my friends. If you've ever seen kindergartners play together, like on the playground, you know there's a pecking order. There is some kid who's like the alpha male of that group based on his size, his charisma. Everybody looks up to him. And in my group, it was a guy named Casey. We literally looked up to Casey, became a linebacker and a rugby player later in life. So everybody wanted to to please Casey. Well, we're playing one day and without thinking about it, I popped my thumb in my mouth and Casey laughed. He laughed at me because that's what babies do. So he, he laughs at me and everybody's looking at me. And I remember feeling the, the shame of that ridicule in public. And that was it. I never sucked my thumb again. Boom. Done with that. I, I never did it again. One minute of public shame had accomplished what years of parental instruction failed to do. That's the power of public ridicule. It's really uncomfortable to be shamed in public. It's, it's very painful. And, and because of that pain, public ridicule can lead to pretty radical life change. When you're ridiculed, when you're shamed in public, it can lead you to make some pretty big changes in your life. It could be for good, like in my story, sucking my thumb, or it could be for bad, like in our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see that some believers in the church of Corinth in the first century had had begun to face shame and ridicule from society because of their faith. And in response to that public shame, they were considering abandoning something incredibly important to Christianity, the resurrection. They were ready to, to abandon, to jettison their belief that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And here's why. Because in first century Greece, in first century Greco-Roman world, they really laughed at the idea of resurrection. If you went and talked to the average Greek person, they would have ridiculed anyone who would say that, that people are going to rise from the dead. You can actually see that, that laughter, that ridicule in Acts chapter 17. Paul was speaking to the Athenian philosophers, and he's talking about the, the gospel. Here's Paul in, in Acts 17. He, he says, of God, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And And of this, he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. So there's resurrection. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They laughed. They they ridiculed Paul for this belief in resurrection. Resurrection seemed laughable to to Greek people. First of all, because they'd never seen it. There were no other examples to point to of someone rising from the dead. It seemed ridiculous. But second, it was laughable because they could not understand why you would want to rise from the dead. Why you would want to be resurrected. Because the Greeks, they, they had a very negative view of the body. Your body, it, it betrays you all the time. You get sick, you get injured, it hurts, it gets old, it begins to sag, it breaks down, and finally it dies. The body seems like a really negative thing. And so the Greeks couldn't understand why, why would you want to get a body back. A body's not a good thing. What you should look forward to is being released from your body. You see that in, in Socrates, most famous philosopher there is. 
Socrates said, soul is entirely fastened and welded to the body and is compelled to regard realities through the body as through prison bars. You actually viewed your body as a prison for your soul. Your soul, your spirit is trapped in this painful, decaying, suffering sack of flesh. And so they look forward to death because finally your soul will be released. Why, why would you want to get your body back? Why would you want to be resurrected? So they laughed at anyone who would teach resurrection. It was an incredibly unpopular, ridiculous idea in Greek society. And so as the church began to talk, about Jesus Christ rising from the dead, they began to experience shame and ridicule from the culture around them. And, and that shame, it's not fun. That ridicule, it's, it's not pleasant. And so the Corinthian believers were considering jettisoning this teaching about resurrection because that's, that's what we're tempted to do. When in the church, we are ridiculed by society for some belief that we hold dear, some teaching that we, that we proclaim that the world ridicules. When we experience that ridicule, we're tempted to just jettison that, that one belief. Let's just let go of that one so that we can make Christianity more palatable, more acceptable to the society we live in. So you see that today with issues like resurrection. Resurrection is a pretty big miracle. People have a hard time believing in, in big miracles like that because we can't reproduce it in a scientific lab. So many churches have abandoned their belief in the resurrection. You see it with issues like hell and the wrath of God. No one wants to talk about that. That's really unpleasant. It's really offensive to the world at large. And so you see whole churches who have simply abandoned anything about God's wrath or about hell. We'd just rather talk about his love all the time. You see that same spirit of, of compromise with what the Bible teaches about sexual morality, especially marriage. What the Bible has to say about marriage is incredibly unpopular and offensive in the society that we live in. So you have church after church that, that simply jettisons what the Bible says about marriage to make Christianity more acceptable to the culture that we live in. It's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. We have a belief that is receiving ridicule from the world, so we will simply jettison it. We will compromise that belief. So they began to to deny the resurrection or to redefine it. It's just metaphor. It's just figurative language for spiritual change. Well, Paul was not okay with that compromise. To say it mildly, Paul was upset that they were willing to compromise something as foundational as the resurrection of Jesus Christ just because it was unpopular, just because it brought ridicule from the world. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. You cannot overstate the importance of the truth that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. For Paul, it's absolutely essential. It's non-negotiable. And so he spends this entire chapter, all of 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It begins with with the facts. So next slide, facts. Look with me at verse 3. Paul lays out the facts of the the good news of what Jesus did. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Three things here. He, He died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose from the dead, and all of this was according to the Scriptures. Scriptures at this time was was the Old Testament, so Paul's saying that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would would live, die, and rise from the dead. Jesus fulfilled all of that. Now, that, that news about Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, we call that the gospel. It's good news about what Jesus has done for us. So Paul presents the facts of the gospel, and then he gives us proof. He gives us proof for for why it's reasonable to believe that it actually happened, that this event, Jesus' death and resurrection, actually happened just as the Bible describes. Look with me at verse 5. Paul gives us proof. 
He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is listing out witnesses to the resurrection. People who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. So you got Peter, you got James, you got the apostles, you got Paul, you got 500 others. Why is he listing all these people? Because of verse 6. Most of them were still alive. So Paul's inviting you. If you wonder, did the resurrection happen? Just go talk to these hundreds of people who witnessed it. They will verify the truth of the resurrection. Now that's great for the Corinthians. Hard for us. We live 1,900 years later. All of them are dead. So how do we prove that the resurrection happened? How do we verify this, this event? Well, fortunately, God has given us literally a mountain of historical evidence, some in the Bible, some outside the Bible, for why it is more reasonable to believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead than that they made it all up. Tons of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I can't share that this morning because that's not where our passage goes, but I have written it out and I will share it this week on Facebook and Twitter. So I'd love for you to catch it there, list out for you the reasons why we can have confidence that Jesus really did walk out of that tomb alive. Okay, so I'll list that out in the next couple days on Facebook and Twitter. You can get it. And what you'll see as you go through that is that you'll see that belief in the resurrection is not a blind leap. You are not jumping into the dark. You are making a reasoned decision based on a ton of evidence that God has given us that he really did raise his son from the dead. Okay, so, so look at that later this week. But we're not going to talk about that this morning because Paul doesn't spend much of the passage talking about the factuality of the resurrection. He spends most of the passage talking about the relevance of the resurrection. Why does it matter to you today? That Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. What relevance does that piece of history have to your daily life? Paul's going to spend most of this chapter unpacking that, answering that question, helping you to see that, that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely essential to your daily life. It's non-negotiable. You must cling to it. You must hold to this belief in the resurrection of Jesus or you lose everything you hold dear. I think Paul would, would agree with, with famous words of John Updike. He put it perfectly. Make no mistake, if he rose at all and it was as his body, if, if the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. If we lose the resurrection, Paul wants us to understand we lose everything. We're completely wasting our time. There's no reason to be in this room. There's no reason to talk about God or the Bible or anything else if Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's that important, so let me prove it to you. Paul's going to give us three reasons why the resurrection matters to us. Reason number one, because Jesus rose, we have forgiveness. It's the first thing we have. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have forgiveness for our sins. Paul actually presents it to us in the negative. Look with me at verse 17. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Now, now read that carefully. Paul's not saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, your faith is less valuable or, or less significant. No, he says your faith is worthless. 
Completely pointless that you talk about God. Completely pointless that you read the Bible. Completely pointless that you have any belief in God if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Why? Because he tells you next. Even if you have great faith in God, that faith is pointless because you are still in your sins if Jesus didn't rise. Regardless of your great faith, you're still under sin. You are still guilty of your sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. How is that? Well, back in verse 3 we saw that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. So, so his death was payment for your sins. But what we have to understand is that his resurrection was proof that the payment was sufficient. It's Jesus rising from the dead that proves for all time that his death was valuable enough to pay for all of our sins. Let me explain it this way. Uh, let's say that this afternoon you want to go buy groceries at HEB. So you're going to go brave the crowds, and you're going to go buy groceries, and you get your cart, you start walking down the aisle, and you start loading stuff in your cart. When, when does all that stuff begin to belong to you? When you put it in your cart? No. Don't try that. Don't walk out with stuff in the cart. It's not going to work well for you. So how about when you pull up to the checkout aisle? No, not yet. Put it on the conveyor? Not yet. Have the guy scan it? Not yet. Slide your card through the machine? Not yet. When does it belong to you? When the receipt prints. When the receipt prints. I have tried to walk out of HEB without a receipt printing before. I just mind my own business. I'm just busy. I slide the card. I begin to walk out. And the guy stops me. Wait a minute. Your card, it was not accepted. It was, was not sufficient. So I had to go back. It was, didn't read it right. I realized that, that that stuff doesn't belong to me. It's not legally mine until the receipt prints, proving that my payment was sufficient. That's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, it's like you don't have a receipt for the payment of your sins. You're still in your sins. Jesus' resurrection is God's receipt proving that his payment was sufficient for all of your sins for all of time. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then his death is really worthless for you. It's like scanning a card that's not read. It doesn't do anything for you. It's a resurrection that proves that it was enough. So Paul puts it this way. Look at verse 18. Here's his conclusion. Okay, so, so verse 18. If Jesus didn't rise, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ. He's talking about believers who have died. Sleep is just Paul's nice way of talking about death. So believers who have died in Christ, here's the result, have perished. Have perished. What does it mean to perish? Well, to perish is to die separated from God for all time, lost in sin. It's really helpful to compare that verse, verse 18, with the most famous verse in your Bible, John three sixteen. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Paul's telling you in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that verse is a lie. The most famous verse in the Bible is a pipe dream. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, because it doesn't matter how much you believe, you will perish if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, because his death was not sufficient payment for your sins. You are still in your sins if Jesus did not rise, but he did rise from the dead. He walked out of that tomb alive, and that is proof to you that his payment was sufficient for your sins, so you can be forgiven. The resurrection is the basis of how God can forgive sinners like us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 4. He says, He, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. 
His death was, was payment for our sins. He was delivered over because of our sins. But it's, it's his resurrection that makes justification possible. What is justification? It's a fancy word for forgiveness. Justification is God declaring you to be in the right. Your sins forgiven. Jesus' resurrection makes it possible for a holy God to forgive sinners like us. So we have to understand, if we're, if we're willing to compromise on the resurrection, if we're let, willing to let go of that belief, then we lose what is most precious to us. Forgiveness and eternal life are gone. They're a lie, a pipe dream without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection made it possible for a holy God to forgive a sinner like you. Because the first reason we must hold fast to the resurrection is because it makes forgiveness possible for us. Because Jesus rose, we have forgiveness. Second reason, because Jesus rose, we have hope. So looking at some statistics this week, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, in 2012, they did a survey of a whole bunch of people. They found out that 68% of people, I think it's here in America, 68% of people report having a strong fear of death. It's called necrophobia. That's second only to a fear called glossophobia. 72% of people have that fear. That's a strong fear of public speaking. Now, I've got to admit that's pretty funny to me. That there's more people who are afraid of doing this than dying. Well, it's not that bad up here, guys. This isn't a big deal. It's nothing like death. I actually think the fear of death is way underreported. Because I've never talked to anyone who is comfortable with the idea of death. That's not human. We, we fear death. Humans fear death. We, we always have fear this, this unknown thing called death. You see it in, in great writers of all time. Great American writer, Jack Kerouac, put it this way. I am young now and, and can look upon my body and soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon. And later it will begin to disintegrate. And then I shall die and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? He's right. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If there is no resurrection, that it is reasonable to live your entire life in fear. Because this life is short. It's going to end at a time you don't get to pick. It's just going to come, and that's it. It is reasonable to live in constant fear of death if this life is all you get. But it's not. Because Jesus rose from the dead. We, too, will rise from the dead. Look again at 1 Corinthians 15. Look down at verse 20. Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep or who have died. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam was the first representative of the human race. He chose sin, and the result was that death came to us all. We will all die. So God sent a new Adam, Jesus to be our new representative. He chose righteousness, and as a result, he has brought life to all of the human race, to everyone who will trust in him. Death is not the end for us. We will die, but then we will live because Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Because he rose from the dead, so we will rise from the dead. So we're celebrating in baptism. When we pull the people out of the water, we don't leave them down there because that'd be really bad. This wouldn't be a happy day. If we left people... In the water, we pick them up out of the water. Why? Because we're showing that's what's going to happen to us. We have been joined to Jesus' death, so we will be joined to his life. We will live forever. That's the hope of resurrection. 
And because we have this hope of resurrection, we no longer need to live in terror of death. Peter puts it this way in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, he says, But God raised him, that is Jesus, up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Yes, you will die. We will all die. But we don't have to live in agony of that. We don't have to live in, in fear and, and, and anxiety about our own mortality because we know that this life isn't all we're going to get. In fact, this isn't the good part of life. This is the really cruddy part of our very short life here on earth. And then we get the perfect life, the life to come, the resurrected life. And that gives us hope even when we face death. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, even when this life deeply disappoints us, we can have hope because we know that death will not be the end of our story. It wasn't the end of Jesus' story. It won't be the end of your story. Death for us is nothing to fear. It's just a doorway. It's just a door you walk through into your better life that lasts forever, your resurrection life. That's the hope that we have in resurrection. But to understand that hope, to really feel that hope in resurrection, we need to talk for a minute about what that word means. What will it mean to be resurrected? What will it be like to live in a resurrected body? Well, let's talk for a minute about what happens when you die. I want you to leave your finger in 1 Corinthians 15 and flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, look with me. Chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay, so the, the moment that you die, you are instantly with Jesus, instantly in his presence. Your spirit goes to be with Jesus. And Paul says, that's preferable to life as it is today. Okay, so going to heaven is, is an improvement. Your spirit immediately goes to be with Jesus. I hope that if you've lost a loved one who is a believer, that you'll find great comfort in that. They're not sleeping in the grave right now. They're, they're, not, they're not just quiet in the grave. They're with Jesus. They're awake. They're aware. They're worshiping and enjoying him. So to die is to instantly be in the presence of Jesus, but you will be bodiless. You will not have a body. We're absent from the body. That's what death is. Death tears apart the, the bond between spirit and body, spirit and flesh. Your spirit goes to heaven. Your body goes into the grave. And, and Paul wants us to understand that will be an improvement over life as it is today, but it will not be your best life. The moment that you die and you go to be with Jesus, it's better than life is now, but it's not best. That's what Paul talks about. Look at back at verse 2. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. It's a weird-sounding passage. Sounds like it's all about clothing and nakedness in a house and a tent. All of that's a metaphor for your body. Your spirit inhabits your body like, like your body inhabits clothes. And Paul's saying when, you're, when your spirit is ripped out of your body, it's with Jesus and that's an improvement, but it's kind of like you're naked. It's not really where you want to be. It's not, not completely satisfying. What you look forward to is to be clothed with what's new, with the resurrection body. 
That's, that's what God will do in the next stage. So you die in your spirits immediately with Jesus. In the next stage, at resurrection, God raises up for you a new and perfect body and rejoins it to your spirit. So he fixes that deficiency that we'll have when we're with Jesus. We'll be bodiless. God fixes that in the resurrection. So let's look back at 1 Corinthians 15. Let's see what Paul has to say about this resurrection body. Look towards the end of the chapter. Verse 42. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul wants you to understand, resurrection is not reanimation. God is not going to resuscitate the current body that you possess and give it back to you. You're going to have a new body. A newly created body that is unlike this body. It's not perishable. It's not weak. It's not dishonorable. It's perfect in every way. That's resurrection. You you receive a brand new, perfectly created body. Now, what, what do we know about this perfect body that you will receive? Well, to answer that question, we look at the only guy who has risen from the dead. We look at Jesus. What was his body like after he rose from the dead? Well, a few things that, that you notice when you look at Jesus, when you look at his body, the first thing you notice, it was a real functional body. Jesus had bones and flesh and muscles and organs and, and skin and nerves. He had a real body just like you will. You have a real body and his real body functioned just like a body should. So Luke 24, Jesus shows up after the resurrection and what does he ask for? I want some food. He's hungry. So they give him some broiled fish, and, and he likes it. He eats it. And, and so it tells us our, our resurrected bodies, we're going to still eat. We're going to still do what bodies do. I, I really like that because I like to eat. I'm, I'm really excited about that. I actually love a passage in Isaiah 24 where it talks about how in the resurrection, God will create a, an elaborate feast before us. We will eat the best of wine and steak that we have ever had. That's what you're looking forward to in the resurrection because you'll have a body that will be real and will be functional. I don't know all the details, but God tells you, you have a real body that will really function. It's the first thing you see when you look at the body of Jesus. Second, you see that this new body will be immortal and unbreakable. Immortal and unbreakable. Jesus rose from the dead, and the Bible is clear. He can never die again. Once you've risen from the dead, you, you cannot die. Death is gone. But not only can you not die, you can't be injured. So the Bible tells us there's, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no injury, there's no illness, there's no weeping in heaven. All of that will be done. So your new body will not only be immortal, it will be unbreakable. It cannot be harmed. The third thing that we see when we look at Jesus is that this new body you have will be recognizable. When Jesus showed up, the disciples knew who he was. He shows up in the upper room, they immediately, that's Jesus. They recognize him, so it will be for you. You will receive a new perfected body, but, but people will still know that's you. You'll look at me and say, that's Blake. You'll know who I am, even though I have a new perfected body. I don't know what age we'll be at. I assume it'll be kind of the the peak age of our life. We won't have any of the effects of aging. We'll be able to perfectly worship and enjoy God's creation. That's the hope that we have in resurrection, that you will receive a new and perfect, unbreakable, immortal body with which you can enjoy all the pleasures and benefits of God's great creation. So because we have that, that hope and resurrection, we need not fear death anymore. We can live in, in confidence in this life. That's how Paul draws the chapter to a close. Look at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. 
It says in verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. Death did not beat him, it won't beat you. You will overcome death. You will live forever. And because of that, you can have great confidence. You don't need to fear death. Death has no sting for you. Death is nothing to be afraid of for you. Death is actually just your door into a better life, and the life that you have always wanted. When we look at the world around us today, there's a lot to be afraid of. There's a lot to fear. There's a lot to be depressed about. There's terrorism over in Syria. There's persecution throughout that part of the world. There's people losing their jobs. There's people falling ill, people losing loved ones that they hold dear. And yet in the midst of all of that pain and suffering, we have hope. Because we know that death will not end us. This life is not all we get. There's a better life coming. And so in a sense, for a follower of Jesus, death is a friend. It welcomes us into a new and better life. That's why throughout this chapter, I don't know if you noticed when I read it, but what does Paul say of people who have died? He calls them asleep. They're just asleep because that's all death is for us. Just sleep just for a second. And then you're with Jesus now, not with a body, but with Jesus. It's an improvement. And then you receive your resurrected body and things are perfect and what you always wanted them to be for all time. So because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have forgiveness and we have hope. And finally, we have purpose. We have purpose. Paul puts, puts it in the negative. He talks about what purpose you would have in life if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, starting in verse 19. Look back at verse 19. Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, so there is no resurrection life, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Now skip down to verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Christianity is a religion that requires sacrifice. There's much that God has called us to sacrifice. There's sinful things that he's called us to say no to. And then there's legitimate pleasures that he's called us to sacrifice for him and for one another. So Christianity includes sacrifice. But what Paul wants us to understand is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if we're not going to rise from the dead, if this is the only life that we have, then sacrifice, as noble as it is, is utterly worthless. It's actually the most foolish thing you could do. To sacrifice your life, your money, your your possessions for another person, why would you do that if this life is all you have? Because if this life is all we have, then at some point, everyone will be dead and no one will know or care whether you made a sacrifice, right? If there is no existence after this life, then sacrifice is completely meaningless because no one there will care or know. That's why Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then the motto of your life should be eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and and be merry. Do your best to try to be happy, to try to find whatever joy you can in this life because it's all you get. It's the motto immortalized in Dead Poets Society by Robin Williams. You know the lines. 
He looks at his students and he says, Seize the day, gather ye rosebuds while ye may, because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. If this life is all you get, then that's how you should live. Seize the day, gather whatever pleasures you can out of this life because that's all you get. There is no purpose. There is no meaning to life. There's no significance to the years we spend on this ball if no life is coming after this one. But there is a life after this one. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. And because you will rise from your dead, this life has meaning. It has purpose for you. Because this life is not the end of you. Okay, so what is that purpose that God gives us? Well, you go back up to verse three. What'd Paul say in verse three? I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul delivered this, this good news about Jesus as of first importance, more importance than anything else. That is the, the purpose that we have in life, to share this good news about Jesus that he really did die on the cross for our sins and then rise from the dead, defeating sin and death for us to share that good news with, with everyone who will hear us out. That's the purpose that we now have in this life because this life is not the end of us. The one reason that we're here is to prepare people for the next life. That's the only reason God has left you here on this planet. You'd worship much better in heaven. You'd pray much better in heaven. You'd obey much better in heaven. The only reason he's left you here is to tell as many people as possible the good news that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead. We make it our our ambition in life to share this good news about Jesus with everyone we can. Why? Because we believe that's the only hope this world has. All of the other things that people try to do to improve this planet, like economic reform and, and medical research and, and charity work, all of the things that they try to do, they're just band-aids because all they can fix are the symptoms of the problem. No education reform, no charitable aid can ever get to the root of the problem, which is sin and death. Nothing can fix that except the good news of verses three and four, the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That is the only thing that can fix the problems that this world faces. And so we make it our aim in life, our purpose in life to share the good news of Jesus with everyone who will listen. We cry out to them. We plead with them. Please be convinced that there is a God and he loves you so much that he sent his own beloved son to die for your sins. It really happened and then rise from the dead. It really happened so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. Not something you have to earn, but something you can have for free. And so let me challenge you. First and foremost, has there been a moment in your life where you have believed what Paul says in verses three and four? Has there been a moment where you've looked at the evidence, where you have come to believe that there is a God and that he loves you so much that his son died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift? You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn God's love. It's yours if you will simply say, yes, I believe your son died for me and rose from the dead. Has there been a moment when you've said, yes, I believe that's true? If not, if there's something holding you back, something keeping you from being able to, to believe those, those statements about Jesus. And I, I want to challenge you, encourage you, do everything I possibly can. Please come talk to me or send me an email. 
I would love to talk to you about your objections to Jesus. I don't know if I can answer all of them, but I'll do my best. I want to help you to see how reasonable it is to actually believe that God's son died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life. For those of us who have believed that good news, Paul ends the chapter with a word to us. Most of the chapter is theology, but the last verse is application. Here's what you should do with this truth. Here's what what it means to your daily life. Look at the last verse in chapter 15, verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable. Paul is saying, cling to the truths of Scripture, even when they're incredibly unpopular, even when they bring ridicule and shame, even when people look at you and laugh or feel like you have offended them because of the truth you cling to, stand fast on that truth. Be immovable. Hold to the truths of God's word because if you begin to give them up, you will end up losing everything you hold dear. Christianity isn't something you can take piecemeal. It's all or nothing. So hold fast, immovable to the truths of God's word, especially the truth of resurrection, even when that brings ridicule. In fact, Paul tells you to expect ridicule. That's why you need to be strong. That's why you need to stand immovable because ridicule is coming. That's always been true. God's people will always be ridiculed by this world. In fact, if the world isn't ridiculing you, if it's not making fun of you, if it's not looking down on you because of your beliefs, that means that something's wrong, not with the world, but with you. That's what we're called to expect. They ridicule Jesus, so they will ridicule us. Be ready for that. And when ridicule comes, stand fast on the truth and then busy yourself with the work of the Lord, with loving other people. You notice Paul doesn't say fight back. He doesn't say shame them. He doesn't say ridicule them. He doesn't say look down on them. He says serve them. Do the good deeds of the Lord. Love your neighbor even when they ridicule you. Return love for hate. Return good for evil. Serve and love the world and do everything you can to tell them the good news of Jesus. That's how we should be looking at all this news about ISIS. They're not people to hate. They're people to love. They need Jesus. And so we busy ourselves with the work of the Lord, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, blessing those who ridicule us, knowing the end of the verse, the great promise that our toil in the Lord is not in vain. Our suffering will not be wasted. Our persecution will not be wasted by God. He will use it. He will use all the pain, all the toil in our lives for good, for us and for other people, good in this life and good in the next life. You may not see the good in this life. It may not be till the next life that you see how good it was to serve the Lord, how good it was to suffer for the sake of Jesus. But even when persecution comes, let us stand fast, immovable on the truths of God's word, clinging to the hope of resurrection. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you raised your son Jesus from the dead. We praise you that you did not allow death to win. We praise you that you raised Jesus and now you offer his resurrection life to us as an absolutely free gift. Thank you, God, that you don't make us try to earn it, that you don't leave us to try to to work for your love and your forgiveness. Thank you that you offer it for 
for absolutely free. We pray for anyone here who has not yet believed that message, who has not yet come to understand how free eternal life is. Please help them to see it, help them to believe it. For us who have believed in in Jesus and trusted that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be bold. Help us to, to shout from the rooftops to this world that there is a God who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for their sins and rise from the dead so they could be forgiven. I pray, God, help us to be courageous even when we face ridicule, even when we feel embarrassed, even when we receive shame from the world. I pray that we would be faithful to shout the good news of Jesus, to tell everyone who would listen that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I pray that that would be our ambition in life. I pray that you would help us to grow to be faithful. Even if we must suffer for that truth, help us to stand fast, immovable as your witnesses to this world, that there is a life after this one, a better life, a perfect life available to everyone who will simply say yes to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Thank you that you've paid the price that we owed Thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins. Thank you that you have given us life. Thank you that you will resurrect our bodies. Thank you that you have guaranteed a perfect eternity for us, not because we deserve it, but because your son earned it for us. Thank you for Jesus. In his perfect and glorious name and for his honor we pray, amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.